HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Salguero, founder and CEO of ButcherBox, the incredible subscription service that delivers a variety of 100% grass-fed meat, wild-caught seafood, free-range poultry, and more straight to your home. What started as a Kickstarter in 2015 is now close to a billion-dollar certified B Corp, all with zero outside funding. ButcherBox was built on the foundation of connecting consumers with grass-fed beef and continues to grow its impact by focusing on animal welfare, supporting farmers, treating our planet with respect, and upholding diversity, equity, and inclusion across the business. Mike, welcome. I am so happy you're here. You know that. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Excited to do this. Yeah, no, I'm pumped. Um, we're going to dive right in because you have a how I built this. And I always talk about that this is like, how the hell am I going to build this? Um, <laughs> so for those of you who want the, you know, high level, amazing story, uh, go listen to that. If you want like the nitty gritty, stay right here and don't leave. Um, so the plan for butcher box was a hobby business called meet with a name, which I think <laughs> is great. Um, great and name, yeah. I, I mean, you know, could, could use some workshopping. Glad you, glad you didn't <laughs> land there. Um, and essentially was a monthly subscription of kind of like you get what you get grass fed meat. Yeah, yeah. Well, and chicken and pork. Um, 
Yeah. So, so uh, at the very beginning, um, I had run a venture-backed company called custommade.com for about eight years. We mm-hmm. raised about $30 million of funding and I ended up like losing everyone's money. Company went mm-hmm. under, we let go of everybody and I, I, as well as me, and was like, okay, what's next? And uh, right. my, my plan was to take a hundred days off and like go meditate, do all the stuff. And I ended up <laughs> taking the weekend off and then starting ButcherBox. Starting a new um, business, right? <laughs> yeah. And the, 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 the idea behind ButcherBox was to be one of these like Tim Ferriss four-hour work week businesses where, you know, I check out my numbers in Argentina and I'm just kind of like kicking back and mm-hmm. uh, spending all this time with my family and all that. And uh, that, that ButcherBox was going to be a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought at the beginning that if we had a thousand subscribers and we made a $20 profit off them on a monthly basis, uh, you know, it's $20,000 is like, great. I can live on 20 grand, like no problem. Uh, <laughs> get a few contracts, you know, get a few support right. people in and you've got a business. And, um, I, I really wanted to work in a subscription business because they just, they compound on themselves in really amazing ways. So you, you, you can be less focused on it. I believe that's mm-hmm. in, you know, the Tim Ferriss for our work week as well. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to like build a nice little hobby business. And, uh, we started with a Kickstarter. I did that cause I thought yeah. I could name it. And, uh, I read about that Kickstarter and mm-hmm. it, it's interesting because I, you know, it made sense, obviously, from like a, you know, a finance perspective, right? You were a little burnt by the VC situation. We can talk about that. You definitely, you know, wanted to get people who really wanted this because there was a problem and these were the people who were looking for solutions. But I think also there was like something, the Kickstarter seems to sort of have changed your mind a little bit about what this business even was because it went from zero to hero without you even really planning that. So tell me why you started as a Kickstarter and what ended up happening when you did it. And basically like 200 and some odd thousand dollars later, you know, what happened in that little time frame for you? Yeah. So Kickstarter is a platform where people put up like a project that they want to do. And usually it's, um, you know, they can't do it because they need pre-orders to finance inventory mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and so um, I thought it was an interesting place because we wouldn't have to buy inventory and like hope for the best. We would be able to see how many sales there were and mm-hmm. then buy inventory and people didn't mind if it was a couple months delayed. And, you know, I, th- I thought it would be a forgiving place to test and see if this would work. Okay. Um, also I, uh, at custom made, we were like a, a two sided marketplace for custom stuff that, 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 that was our business. And so I went to, as a CEO, I went to school on, um, what they call two sided marketplaces, which Kickstarter was, and uh, the, the dynamic of a two-sided marketplace is there are these moments of time that if you know how to play by the rules, you can have outsized rewards. So mm, like growing okay. up, eBay, early eBay, there were like stores dedicated to like, we sell your stuff on eBay. And they're all over the right. country. And they just knew how to like keyword stuff and take good photos and could get a huge like premium for selling your stuff on eBay. Right. Well, eventually eBay's platform caught up and now you can like, that doesn't work anymore. Um, right. And so the, the arbitrage like went away. 
I believed, and I was right, I believed that Kickstarter in 2015 was at a point where if we knew how to game it, if we knew how to like tweak our thing, that we could like rise to the top on Kickstarter as a platform. Okay, so how'd you tweak it? Tell me about gaming the platform. Yeah, so it was all about <laughs> this uh, verified badge. It was like Kickstarter verified. And once you were verified, okay. then you show up in search, you show up on the food page, you can show up on the home page. But if you're not verified, um, and, and it's you know your classic like 80-20 or 10-90 rule where mm-hmm. only certain projects get verified. So then the question mm-hmm. was, well, how do you get verified? And it's like, mm-hmm. you watch enough of these and watch them get verified. And it's like one, one part speed of um, like uh, how fast you hit your goal. So mm-hmm. we said our goal was 25,000. Uh, right. and we, we had like a $5,000 prize that I, and I pre-sold a bunch of those as well as a year subscription for 1400 as well as, and so we were, we knew that we were going to blow through that goal like immediately. Right. And we had a whole email list and we told everyone like, we're trying to game this. So like if if at 801, you could hit buy, you know, so within like minutes we were like done, we we had already passed our goal. And within the first day, I think we had raised like 35,000 and then we got the badge and then we showed up everywhere and then Kickstarter starts doing the work for you. It's not just Mm. you hitting your, your friends and family again. It's like random people who go on Kickstarter trying to find interesting projects. So, I mean, I'm just going to say for like a dude who's like, I could live on $20,000 and this is a hobby. (laughs) Like, um, (laughs) you seemed pretty into it from day one. Yeah, You know, know, it was like you were, were you trying to, I mean, I think going back to the, the custom made, you know, I, I actually thought what you talked about on how I built this was really poignant and and it was honest and it was lovely. And I think right now, especially founders need to hear that sometimes it's just not going to work. And sometimes the business doesn't want to be a business as you yeah. put it. Um, yeah. but you also, you, you talked about how when the VC money came in first, they were like, your engineers aren't working out. So you change that team. Your marketing team isn't working out. So you change that team, your sales team. And it's almost like I was imagining you like cutting down the trees around you and you were like the last tree. And then you kind of knew that you were the last tree and it was a really horrible (laughs) feeling. Um, so on one hand, it seems like you were trying to avoid um, being that kind of business again. But on the other, it feels a little like you might've had a little something to prove to yourself. Oh, for sure. For sure. And so my first company, I had a co-founder too. So we ran the company together. I was the CEO, but we ran the company together. And so I couldn't Mm -hmm. be, I couldn't necessarily be the leader that I wanted to be, or I felt like I needed to be. And to go back to your tree analogy, the only difference that I would say is it's more like uh, bamboo or I guess trees do this anyway, but um, mm-hmm. all the trees that I cut down, I mean, we, we mm-hmm. let go like north of a hundred people over the seven year period. Um, all right. the people that I cut down, those were all my like friends yeah, who I was in the trenches with really early yeah. or in the forest yeah. with, I guess. And they were my you know, my biggest fans and the people who like, we, we, we did amazing early people. Mm-hmm. early people. And then 
we got we finally got the business to the point where Google Ventures invested in us. Google and First Round Capital, two like super well-known VCs. Right. And that was also the point where they looked around and rightfully so, right? They're like, this team has never done this before. And it was a really mm-hmm. hard problem and we weren't solving it. Right. And so it was like, well, we we got to we got to like cha- make some changes. And we're like, great, mm-hmm. no problem. And eventually I worked myself into a business that like I, um, I just, yeah, it was, I was the last tree standing. My, my co-founder yeah. and I we were two, two trees standing. No, I mean, I just think, I think about, you know, I've called you, um, for, you know, various advice here and there. And, you know, I think as a founder, you hear, and I remember this from having the brick and mortar, like everybody who came in to get coffee was like, you should do this. You should eat, you know, make this, you should open <laughs> here. You, you know, and, and as a founder, you're almost like you are spongy, right? You want, you want to create a product that is solving a problem for people and you, and you want to listen. Um, and you, and I mean, I think we all know founders that are like way too wed to their own vision, and they end up running that vision into the ground. Um, but it's hard sometimes, I think, especially if you are more open to feedback. You know, I've called you and said, uh, you know, a potential investor said this. And you've been like, no, you know, that doesn't track. Like, it's hard for us to hold our ourselves when there are these people that, you know, quote unquote, know more or are more yeah. experienced telling mm-hmm. us how we should be doing things or, you know, what we should be doing. And I still, all the time, you know, my team can tell when I've talked to someone who, you know, gives me advice. Um, and I, I write a whole thing in Slack about, well, so-and-so said this, and maybe we should try this, 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 and this. And they give me a minute to then like go back into Slack and be like, this was just a conversation. <laughs> I, you know, they know but it's hard. How do you, I mean, and so, I mean, I know in this business, you've built quite the moat around yourself because you decided very early on, you weren't going to take in outside money. Um, but other than that, you know, what can we do as founders to not sort of, you know, feel crappy a lot of the time? (laughs) Okay. Okay. So when you were talking about an experience of like, you know, you talk to an investor, they give you some advice and then you go immediately tell your team, right? You're like, Oh, mm-hmm. what about this? A couple things. Um, yeah, don't one, do that. I'm sure. Is that- well, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, think about it a little bit, but, um, mm-hmm. so one would be like, yes, you, um, you're impressionable. It's your first time. This mm-hmm. is an investor who's like super smart and sophisticated and sees, sees a lot. So you're like, you, you want, you like listen to them and you want to like, first of all, you want to pay them the respect. And also you're like, huh, they might be right. Yeah. So part of it is, you know, recognizing most of these investors spend like 16 seconds, like looking at your website. Cause they have so mm-hmm. many other deals, especially if you're an early yep. founder and it's like a seed fund, like they're not, they don't really spend a lot of time on your deal. Right. right? And so you got to take their information with a grain of salt. They're pattern recognizers. So they're going to point to someone else who's doing a great thing, but that doesn't necessarily work for you. So just mm-hmm. as a filter, just kind of like, okay, how much time did you really spend on this? Cause if you want right. to come in here and tell me my button needs to be yellow and pound your fists on the table, like that's fine. But that's, they're just, they're dealing with their own 
their own shit, right? right? That's actually Um, very helpful because it's a good filter for me to put on when I'm exposing myself to all of these conversations. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, Okay. And the other thing is like, you know, you're using words like exposing yourself to the conversation. So it seems like it takes some energy (laughs) from you to have these conversations. And so just to, just to like be, to recognize that and try to build the conversations in a way where you like, I try to avoid conversations I, I, that don't give me energy, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. without taking funding, I can do that. But if you have certain investors who like, you're just like, eh, this, maybe there's mm-hmm. a different way to have a conversation. Maybe you bring someone else along who wants to hear the nitty gritty stuff. Like there, there are ways to kind mm-hmm. of like try to make that conversation into an energy producing conversation rather than an energy sucking conversation. I love that. Um, I think the that's third my thing, goal in life. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If you can live a life of just constant people giving you energy, like. Can I do that with my kids too? Just yes. Like, I'm right now. This is an energy sucking conversation. So <laughs> <laughs> I would like you to convert this into an energy producing conversation or, you know, Absolutely. take a minute. Yeah. I like the it. First, okay. The first thing yeah. is to recognize the, the, to recognize your energy coming or going yeah. and then to actually be like, I want, energy like that's a good thing for me and yes what happens is you will align your life around like receiving energy rather than just giving it away everywhere you go even with your kids and i do think it's a founder maybe i'm completely generalizing and being super reductive but i do think a lot of founders i know are you know energy givers we're used yeah. to walking into a place and hyping something or someone up selling something, even if we don't realize it, you know, we're used to, we're used to giving energy. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's just learning how to put a, a, a limit on the drain, you know, is that's a good way to, that's a good way to frame it. Yeah. So that's actually uh, a good kind of, um, uh, but so I had a third point. So my first point yeah. was like, have a filter. My second point was like, watch your energy draining and make sure that you mm-hmm. keep your energy high. The third is when, when you as a founder go and talk to an investor and come back and throw it on Slack, what that yeah. says to me is that you're all alone. Yeah. And uh. I, uh, I'm sorry. I know how that feels, right? It's, it's really hard to be like, cause you know, you know, rationally, like, okay, I should probably take a minute, maybe like bounce this off a few people before I'm like, yeah. Hey team, like, I just learned this right. thing. Like, <laughs> let's go implement it. Right. Or at, at least at this yeah. point, you've realized that that's a bad pattern that you're in. Yes, not for sure. It's as bad, but it's like non-productive. It's um, not productive. And yeah. so you could do it better. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the question is like, who do you have in your life? who is, whether it's a group of founders or it's these like y, YPO or EO groups, like mm-hmm. who do you have in your life that you can just be like, this person told me this and I, I don't even know if it's good advice. And you can kind of like just be um, open and yeah. honest that like you don't know whether this is good advice before throwing it over Sharing the fence of the team. I will say that my, my team, it's always like that. I, um, it's like <laughs> whenever I say, well, I read a book this weekend and mm-hmm. they're like, Oh, great. Here we go. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. I mean, it's, you know, I summarize, I basically read a book, summarize it, you know, highlight the parts that I like and give it to <laughs> people. But I yep. do think, you know, I mean, I got a little teary eyed. I will say you made me a little teary eyed. Um, when you just said like the alone part, 
I think a lot of us feel that way. Um, Sure. And I think it's really important right now, especially there is so much uncertainty. There is so much weirdness going on. I mean, this weekend was crazy, fortunately not for us, but for a lot of my friends that are founders. And it is really important. I'm very fortunate to have a, a small group of founders that I'm in a, just a WhatsApp group. We're all in different categories. We're all a little bit different, but we, we are really incredibly honest with each other. That's great. And I think it's a very, very, it's, it's new ish. Um, because I think again, I tend to be open and honest, but if I don't get it back, then I feel like I'm bleeding. Right. Um, right. you know, and so you got to know who, who's also being, who's willing to go there willing to go there with you. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk more butcher box. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future in Wisconsin, the state of cheese The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. I'm back with Mike Salguero from ButcherBox. Um, okay, got a little teary eyed before the break, so now we're going to like regroup a little bit. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about building the actual business that you built because you did so many things, you know, that just, I don't, I'm not a soccer watcher generally, but I watched the world cup. I don't know if you watched the world cup, but like at the end, remember when Messi like kicked that last penalty kick in and it didn't even look like he tried. Like it just looked like he like touched the ball and all of a sudden it was in the net. Everyone else was like pumping themselves up and like, you know, I don't know, giving themselves all. And he just kind of was like, and then it went in. And of course that's not how it goes, but it feels like this, this was like smooth almost. And I know that that's ridiculous because nothing's smooth, but, you know, starting with a Kickstarter, seeing that there were other people other than you. And, you know, I I know that the grass fed thing came from, you know, trying to eat like a, you know, sort of anti-inflammatory diet, that there was a real problem, that you had a real solution. Um, You found, you know, people who could help you early on with some experience. Um, And then you made it the subscription business where people didn't get to pick out exactly what they got, which is genius. So you could just sort of, you know, manage your inventory that way. Um, Were those all sort of pre thought out? I mean, I I get the Tim Ferriss thing, but 
were you you were purposely trying to make this sort of as as simple as yes. a process as possible yeah yeah because i wanted it to be a hobby so if the problem with um you know meat before this uh, wasn't really sold on subscription mm-hmm. and it was mostly like omaha steaks you can go and you can buy like Fancy the steak gift. box or the, right. the, the the burger box the problem with that if you don't have any money is that you then like you don't even know what people are going to purchase so how do you like forecast what you're going to spend. Yeah. So what we did is we had a beef box, beef chicken or beef chicken and pork. Mm-hmm. And we chose what went in that box. And um that was a fairly unique approach although um you know Blue Apron and all those other companies had come out in 2014, 15, 16, 17. So people were somewhat used to like you're going to get a random meal and you're going to cook it. Mm-hmm. Like that wasn't super foreign to people. Right. Um, and so I thought like, instead of a random meal, what if we send you like random cuts and then put recipes in or like encourage you to cook and, um, and, and then we would just forecast our demand. And what we did is we had like box, we call the box one, box two, box three, box mm-hmm. four. So we would, we would like kind of put you on a, we, we knew what we were putting in box one and then we knew what we were putting in box two. And then all we were forecasting was like what our churn curves were going to look like. Right. Um, and, and the idea was to put a box together that was so delightful for you that you stayed for the next box after that box. Because mm-hmm. I, right. I, I need to like, I need you to eat that stuff so I can send you another one. Um, right. Because that's the whole thing about subscriptions, right? Yep. Is, you know, you don't yep. want to have to keep acquiring new consumers right. for them. And, and so, that, Yeah. That worked until it didn't. Uh, and around 2000, I think like two, maybe three years in is when we, uh, first of all, had enough like recurring subscribers to have the confidence to do this. But we, op- we, we started a custom box where you get to choose your cuts. Right. And that's now like 80% of our business. Like very mm-hmm. few people stay on the curated uh, box. Um, right. most, most just want what they want. Um, so we eventually moved to like where the market is. It's interesting because, you know, so we are, I was barking up your tree starting in, I don't know, the, as soon as COVID happened, I basically made a list of anyone who could put our sauce with their thing. I, you know, meat, fish, vegan, I, it didn't matter to me. I just was like, I'm, I'm going to find these e-com businesses. I'm not going to build an e-com business but I'm going to get my sauce into these kits, boxes, whatever. Um, and, you know, so I was after you guys for a long time. I also think sauce, you know, chimichurri and, and meat and our sauce well with together. your, yeah. you know, go well together. So they make sense. But it does make sense to me also because I'm kind of like, just make it like an add to my thing. Like just add a button, you know, but it actually, your whole the whole mindset from the beginning is not to add too much complexity to the fulfillment process of any of it. I mean, is that safe to say? Yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, we, um, so the thing about a subscription business is you, you want to constantly be adding more and more value to the customer, right? So you want their Mm -hmm. basket size to increase, Right. So we have our base subscription, but then we're, we have like lots of deals and specials and lots of like Mm -hmm. ways in which that customer can get more product from us. Right. Um, so, so launching sauces is absolutely, um, 
you know, something that we have been excited to do. Um, I would say that, um, you know, going back to your, your messy example, (laughs) we, yes. So we came out of the gates really hard. We grew to, um, 550 million or $450 million in five years. And then we added another hundred million. Uh, and now we've slowed down. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's one part we have too many subscribers or we have so many subscribers that we lose a bunch. So it's hard to add and replace and grow. Um, one part, the, the market is just a little bit different, but we're constantly trying. I mean, our biggest issue is customer buys a bunch of meat uh, it's in their freezer because we ship it to you frozen. And usually if you, if you come home and you're like, what's for dinner, you open your refrigerator. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not and thinking so, I got to thaw my meat the night correct, before. Right. right. And so, so people, they, they think of their freezer as like a savings account and their, mm-hmm. and their refrigerators, their checking account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so like they, they, they work in the refrigerator space now. So we've done a lot of work on like things that can be cooked directly from frozen or IQF like chicken breast. So you can just grab one and put it in a pan so you can cook from frozen Mm -hmm. because one of the biggest challenges we have is actually the life pattern. Right. Right. Like, like, Oh yeah, no, I'm going to take out steaks and I'm going to have this great chimichurri sauce with it. And like, Mm -hmm. boom, I feel confident I've got Tuesday night dinner and I'm thinking about that on Sunday. Right. Yeah. I mean, speaking of these, you know, I, as you know, like I started with a brick and mortar and a cooking school and we had uh, 12 seats at the table or the, you know, in the kitchen. And it was either, you know, you can't, if you can't add more seats, you got to add a higher ticket. It's either, you know, that, you know, the order size or how many tickets you're getting. It's a very fundamental, whether it's a brick and mortar restaurant or a subscription business. I think it's interesting that, you know, you're talking about sort of slowing down, you know, just because I would imagine that COVID definitely sped up a lot of people subscribing. And, you know, it sounds to me like it makes sense that you want to build these bigger baskets because you need the higher ticket ring, essentially. Is that going to be a marketplace in general? Is it going to, you know, are you still trying to figure out, you know, what are you thinking a little bit in terms of building that, you know, higher AOV per subscriber? Yeah. So I think important to mention like the, so when you ship a box, so we ship frozen, it comes with dry ice. It's a big fancy box that we've like done a lot of work on, but it's a hundred percent recyclable. Um, so that, that's expensive. It's expensive Mm -hmm. to ship a massive box of meat in the mail Mm -hmm. and hope that they don't thaw and all that other stuff. Right. So every additional product that we can put in there, we're actually adding more and more value to the customer. Yep. Um, so if they get a $300 box and it's stuffed to the gills with, with products, like that is, uh, it's not just like, Oh, let's maximize our revenue. It's really like how we can maximize our value to our customer. Sure. And that's how customers tend to buy meat. Like they want high quality and we have the highest quality stuff and we've geeked out about all the claims and how it was raised and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but people want it at a good value. Right. There's a stat like, it's like 60% of the meat is purchased on sale. So you go into the grocery store and you, you look for the yellow 
signs and you buy the stuff on sale. Right. Um, and so that is like, I didn't a know pat- that. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. It's a pattern that already exists in people's meat purchasing. So we, we have to like play along in that pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why we do a lot of like, you know, discounted or like this week only, or because it is the way people buy meat currently. Right. Going back to the subscription thing and COVID were, I mean, were you ready for COVID? <laughs> uh, no. Um, so, well, um, so COVID year, we grew from 220 million to 450 million. Yeah. Now we had grown every year. We went five, 30, 100, 220. So we were used to growing two X every year or three X mm-hmm. every year, but we thought we were going to grow like 20% in right. COVID or 40%. And we grew, we doubled. So mm-hmm. we definitely weren't as prepared as, like we weren't expecting that level of growth. We were pleasantly surprised. Um, I had a friend who uh, worked in Shanghai uh, and she um, came to our house in January of 2020 mm-hmm. and couldn't get back into Shanghai because they'd closed everything. All the factories were closed. And yeah. so at right after that happened, this is like one of my gifts, I think, is just being paranoid and early on things. Seeing around corners. Yeah. Like said. right yeah. after that happened, I was like, we, we reached out to every single company that produced meat for us. We're like, what's your COVID plan? They're like, COVID? What's that? What's that? It was right. kind of hilarious. It's like, you know, two months later, they're like, we have a COVID plan. It's like, <laughs> but at the time it was like, and I was, and, and so we loaded up on inventory. Mm. And we loaded up on inventory. This is where I fell down. Like I, I, I thought all the factories would shut down mm-hmm. just like they did in China mm-hmm. and that we would not be able to get any more supply. So it was like drain everything, bring it in. We're going to hold it in our distribution centers. Mm. I didn't think like, Hey, if there's a global pandemic, we're going to have a, a, a run on the store. Like the, right. the, the customers are going to want it. Um, and so when we, I remember St. Patrick's Day of 2020, meanwhile, I'm like coughing because I think I have COVID, but I couldn't get tested. But I was like, I felt really lousy. We were growing. I mean, it was just like thousands and thousands of people just signing up and signing up and signing yeah. up. And so we, I like to say we rode, we rode the wave for about two weeks, <laughs> just two weeks. That's all. That's as long yeah, as we could last. It got you through two weeks. Uh-huh. And, um, what ended up happening was, uh, we started running out of meat and our members were also wanting more boxes more often. So everyone mm-hmm. was pulling in their orders like, Oh, I'm supposed to get a box next month, but I want it this week. And as I said to my company, I was like, look, um, I only eat butcher box. Like my family, like we, we're not going to eat something else and we're only eating butcher box and I'm not about to go to the grocery store. So like we need to make sure that I and our members don't mm-hmm. have to go to the grocery store. Right. And this is like one of those moments where, you know, you really have to lean on your values. I believe companies need values and we have a value of being mm-hmm. customer obsessed. And like, that is a, it's like, you know what, we don't need to sign up more people right now. What we need to do is make sure the people we have can feed their families safely and confidently. And, um, you know, I don't know if we would have been able to make that choice if we had outside investors. Yeah. But it's, it's, I mean, it's a choice we did. We did make. It's, there was a, there was a baby food company that did something similar when there was that sort of baby food shortage and they just said, no new, we got to, keep our family. And I, I, I think it's interesting that you're bringing up sort of the, 
VCPE thing. Um, you know, you said on how I built this that there was once or twice where you were close to taking the outside money. Yep. And I'm just curious what it was that made you close. Like why, what, what got you close? And I mean, I think ultimately you just have too strong of a pull to not doing it to say yes, but I'm kind of curious how it went down. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there, there have been several people over the, over time who have kind of like hounded me and we've like tried to make it work. Um, and, uh, you know, first, the first person worked at Comcast Ventures. It was Daniel Giuliotti, I think. I think, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his last name, but, um, and he, he sold me on the fact that if we had took Comcast money, they have all this like additional, you know, media buying and all right. this stuff that you, you get. Right? Every, and I was like, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Like that seems mm-hmm. like a great way for us to not like be able to invest in growing and, but then it was like, well, you don't get that much. And it just, it, it didn't work. The one that I mm-hmm. like got really close to was um, Larry Chang, who was one of the first guys in Chewy uh, mm-hmm. at Volition mm-hmm. Capital. And like he, he and I hit it off. Um, we like, I, I really like him. I really respected him. I loved his questions. He obviously had helped Chewy become like the beast that it yeah. is. Yep. And I got really close on that no one pun too. Intended. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and that that was, you know, in in some ways, like so. I, while while I haven't raised money, I've given away equity to like employees. Right. Every, like everyone here to date uh, owns a piece of the company, and uh, money from a outside investor helps clean that up. Because mm-hmm. one of the challenges is like, how do those people get out ever? Right. If you if you like don't raise money. Um, right. or don't go public. Uh, the only way to do it is to sell. And that's, I, I don't really want to sell either. Right. So it's, um, yeah, there've been a couple people who I've gotten close and was tempted. Um, and then just like, I, I, I like literally had a, you know, it's like, listen to your body. Like I had a, <laughs> like a, like, like a full body reaction. No, and like, this is not the right move. Like this yeah. is, and, um, so I just trusted that instead of, yeah. instead of being like, no, I'm going to do this anyway. I trusted that. And thank God, because yeah. you know, what happened in this industry, in this business is, um, blue apron went public in 2017. Uh, their stock cratered immediately. So they, yeah. their last private equity round was at like a $2 billion valuation. They went public and within, before the lockup was done, like everyone lost everything. Um, and so then all of the capital for, uh, box subscription food companies dried up in a second Yeah, and it, it really hasn't returned. Like there used to be all these blue apron lookalikes and they're, they're now there's like hello fresh. And, mm-hmm. um, so all that venture capital dried up. And so if we had raised money in 2015, which I could have done, like I had the network, I, you know, mm-hmm. strangely, if you lose people's money, they're willing to invest in you again. They're like, oh yeah, like. I lost my money the first time. I'm happy to invest in you. Um, <laughs> and, and so like I could have raised money, but I, I, I actually truly believe this business would not be in existence if I had done that. Well, there, uh, there's the big obvious difference too, which is you were profitable. I'm pretty early. Yeah, you have to be like. because, 
because right, we because you were running it that didn't way. Didn't raise any money. Yeah, we right. had to be. And I mean, they were very much not. I mean, they had they had something like ninety percent churn within the first sixty days or something like that. I mean, it was, you know. But going back to that, you know, I think, I think you were prescient in that. You know, there there was this the go-go years. I mean, we're literally right now in the middle of all of that changing. And one example of it is certainly sort of like the meal kit craze. I cannot imagine that we're not going to see one in the plant-based meat craze. I mean, there are these um, insane, you know, innovation is amazing and it takes dreaming and it takes building big and businesses aren't going to usually, unless you're you, be profitable for that first couple million dollars or whatever it is. But I think the combination of just like grow at all costs, top lines, all that matters, let's pour hundreds of millions of dollars into these things. And it's fine because we can just keep acquiring customers, you know, online. Something's got to break. And it seems like it's breaking. For sure. It is breaking because that money, um, is dry, has dried up. And so, yeah, Yeah. I, I was, um, (laughs) I read something that somebody was commenting that they think that one of the reasons for inflation is because, you know, Uber has to become profitable and these companies are no longer just financed on, um, on on losses. And like, so then we have, we have to pay full price because like, it turns out it's, that $20 cab ride that you've been taking for years is actually like cost 50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just haven't cooked yeah. charges for it. Meanwhile, the taxi drivers have gone out of, you know, work because, you know, right. we were, you know, hooked on a, on an Uber that was artificially inexpensive. Correct. Um, right. Scott Galloway talks about this really well. And, you know, I think going back to sort of, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist. And I don't have enough in, you know, understanding to really have that strong of an opinion, but it does seem like investors tend to do pretty well net net. It's the people who buy the stock because smart people quote unquote have invested in these companies. And so, you know, he always says like radiologists and school teachers are like, Oh, well, if the smart people have invested in these things, I should buy the stock. And then the lockup ends and then they're the ones who kind of eat it. Um, I thought you were going to talk about venture capitalists making money because they do that too. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, basically when you run a venture capital fund or you invest money, you make a management fee on all the money that you put out on the street. Right. right? And so it might be a 2% management fee or whatever. So, um, you know, you, you raise a hundred million dollar fund. You need to, you you want, as a venture capitalist, you want that money out as fast as possible. Obviously, you want to drive a return, but you don't get those sweet, sweet management fees unless you get that money out. Right. Right. So they're like, they have every incentive to like pump up, throw more money into these deals. Uh, And and so what happens as a founder is um, they either want this to be a big home run Mm -hmm. or, or die one of the two as fast as possible because they either want to like, Hey, we cut you a check for a million. Now you're doing a hundred million dollar raise. Here's a check for 10 million, right. either that, right. Which they then can report on to their, to, while they're raising their next fund, they're like, look mm-hmm. how well this is doing, even though they haven't actually realized any gain yet. Um, right. It's just like, it's, it's this game of, it, it's a, it, it, 
It's, yeah. um, it's not conducive to building a sustainable long-term business. The incentives yeah. aren't aligned. The incentives yeah. are go raise as much money as humanly possible, as fast as possible. And this is not all the venture capitalists. There are some that are, you know, take a longer term view, but really as like an asset class, it is, um, it's not very founder friendly. Like some of yeah. the, there, there are obviously huge returns, right? And that's what they think about is like, man, if 10% of these things are huge home runs and we're good. Right. And like, yeah. and that's how it works. It's just hard to be, a, you know, I think a lot of my founder friends, you know, I've talked about this before on the show too. Like we're trying to sort of sail this boat, you know, like we want to be, we want to grow quickly enough where it's exciting, where there's interest, where, you know, there's that va va voom. Um, but we also want to, you know, be profitable and be mindful and not open doors that don't make sense for us and not spend on stupid stuff that, you know, um, and that, that sort of, you know, toggling between growth and profitability, you know, for us right now, it's not to say that I like what's going on because I, you know, I feel terrible for people that are collateral damage of this whole new sort of about face. But for those of us who cared about margin from the beginning and didn't open crazy doors and didn't triple every year because of, you know, burning cash and didn't spend a ton on acquiring new consumers online that we don't even know we're going into stores to buy our stuff. There's something a little bit, um, you know, it, it's good. Um, it's good, you know, and it also just means like we just, you know, we have to be even more careful with the money because it's going to be harder and harder to raise, I think. Yeah. So, um, I've said for years that like, once you hop on the venture capital train, you, mm-hmm. you can't hop off. Like, mm-hmm. so you know, oftentimes I'll talk to people cause I'm like the bootstrap guy. So I'll talk to people yeah. who are like, Oh, like how do I bootstrap? I've, I've only raised $3 million. And it's like, what well, you, you, you should have called me a little <laughs> before you raised $3 million. Like right. you, you can't bootstrap anymore. You're now on the venture train. What's been mm-hmm. interesting over the past six months is as like venture has slowed down in certain sectors and people have st- had to become profitable, there yeah. is like a, it's like people are, are rediscovering the religion of profitability. Mm-hmm. And I do find that refreshing as somebody who's been saying like, you know, like if you, if you follow the tech news, uh, you don't read about the companies that are profitable because they right. don't get funded. So they're not in TechCrunch, And so <laughs> right. you think the only way that you can like make it as an entrepreneur is if you raise money. I mean, if you right. think about it, what's people, what's the average American's exposure to uh, um, entrepreneurship? It's Shark Tank. Right. What What's the whole point of Shark Tank? That you go sell a huge swath of your company to the sharks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the yep. whole thing, it's like, just like when every show on HGTV is about flipping houses, you know, you might be at the top of the housing bubble. Right. It's the same thing here. It's like everything is about like nobody's talking about the grind of like running a profitable business and how fun that can be and like right. how um, the less people involved that want like a return kind of the better because you don't have to deal yeah. with all those bosses and all those people telling you what to do. And uh, Yeah, no, I mean, I think about it all the time. And I, you know, I also feel like for those of us who are, you know, we're making complex products that are genuinely better for you and require a supply chain that either in like in our case has never existed before, 
or we're using higher quality ingredients and it's going to take a minute. We're, we're not going to be profitable day one. Um, you know, it, you can be, um, but again, it's just, it's, it's challenging. Um, so it's going to take a couple of years and to build that into, I think what happens is, you know, 101 is we overestimate our, you know, incoming revenue and we underestimate just how expensive it's going to be for us to make the thing that we want to make and, Mm -hmm. um, getting it right. And so, you know, it's nice to have a war chest, but you can make a war chest without, you know, with friends and family or, you know, not with bank loans, but you know, it's, it's harder, you know, it is harder. For sure. It is, it is harder. And I recognize, you know, I'm like, oh, you got, don't raise money, but not, you're right. Not every business can, you can just like not raise any money. Um, right. And I obviously had the benefit of having run a company for eight years. So I was decently known. So like, I kind of, mm-hmm. I, 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 I was, I, I started at a very privileged position that um, is not for everybody. But I think that the, what I see as one of the failures in entrepreneurship is I I believe entrepreneurship is first and foremost about lifestyle design. Like I started ButcherBox as a hobby. I wanted certain Mm -hmm. things. I wanted to like be home because my daughter was five months old. And I like, I wanted, I wanted that. Like I wasn't willing to energy giving conversations. I I wanted energy Mm -hmm. giving conversations. (laughs) I wanted to build the culture the way that I wanted to build the culture. I wanted to take risks on people who like, yeah, they don't have the, the pedigree that you want me to have, but I don't care. Like they're a great person and they've got, you know, like Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to do that. And I knew in my mind that that was more important to me than like any of the other stuff, like being in tech mm-hmm. crunch or like whatever. It's just what I didn't care. Right. I wanted to. Yeah. I, and so oftentimes people are like, what do you think I should do about my, my business plan? And I'm like, have you taken a day where you just go for a walk and you're in nature and you write down the lifestyle that you want? Mm-hmm. Not, not, not even the business. Like forget about the business for a second. Right. Like what do you want to do? Like what do you want your yeah. life to be like? And then I think it's, yeah, that's, yeah, no, it's amazing because I think what happens is, you know, we get on, like you said, on a train, we don't even know that we're on the train, you know, and we're just like, wait, when did I get on this train? You know, what the heck happened in the last couple of years, you know, but I want to talk about something else before we go, because you also grew that community. So, you know, I always go back at my whole team knows like everything's what's the problem? What's the solution? Why are we the right people to build the solution? Right. And if there isn't a problem, then you're not going to have a business. So you knew you had a problem. People wanted grass fed meat. It was hard for them to get. This made it easy. It could not be easier than to get it to their door, literally delivered. But when it came to starting to get, you know, more people to subscribe, you did this really cool thing, which, you know, isn't rocket science now, but I think was kind of interesting at the time there, you know, you had, you had influencers who are now called content creators, which I think is funny. Um, and you know, you, you went hard into sort of that paleo keto CrossFit die hard, people who love products. I mean, it's like 
the RX bars, the magic spoons, like they almost, they're so into this particular way of eating. Um, and they, it's almost like cult-like. Um, yeah. So people were like obsessed with the ability to get this thing. And then you gave them, you know, a referral code. And then they were able to make passive income off of just connecting other people with your business. So I know that's a simplified way of putting it, but I'd like your thoughts on that finding the obsessed niche group, because that's something we have not done. Um, Like we've never leaned hard into keto, even though these are keto verified. Right. And also the referral program. Yeah. So yes, uh, in 2000, what, what happened was we launched our Kickstarter and we basically reached out to anyone who had anything to do with grass-fed beef. And one influencer, this guy, Chris Kresser, wrote about us on Twitter. He was like, mm-hmm. this seems like a cool thing and, and linked to our um, Kickstarter campaign. And we saw an influx of sales. Mm-hmm. By an influx, I mean like maybe 10. It wasn't like anything right. huge, but it was like, well, that's mm-hmm. interesting. And so we ended up re- reaching out to all the influencers in the paleo, keto, whole 30 like world, all of them. Um, yeah. And we, you know, did web research, find everybody, reach out to them. This is 2015 and 16. It's very right. different now. So yeah, like yeah. Um, influencers back then, you could be like, hey, we're a brand new product. I mean, our pitch was, I literally got into grass-fed beef because I was following an elimination diet of yours or something similar to mm-hmm. yours. And um, and we couldn't find a place to buy grass-fed beef. So we started a company to make it really easy. We shipped nationwide. Like, here's all the stuff. Like, and, and by the way, would you want to sell us? And people were like, absolutely. That sounds great. Because we were solving yeah. like a, an, an access mm-hmm. problem. Yeah. Um, but at that point, people were willing to like... Right. Nowadays, they're like, great, pay me five grand and I'll include you in the email. Right. They're not like, no yeah. problem. Like, we'll just, we'll, we'll take $10 to sign up. That sounds great. Right. Um, <laughs> so what happened yeah. was, and this is because we didn't have any money. If we had had, like, if we did a $10 million raise, we probably would have been like, oh, we have a million dollars to allocate towards this. Here's the money. And, but what happened was we inadvertently built this really cool moat around the paleo keto whole 30 space while other people mm-hmm. were coming into the space. Because if you're getting a check every month from us because of your subscribers, yeah. the last thing you want to do is go promote a different company. Right. So, so cool. people just kept promoting us. Um, but like yeah. that wasn't part of the plan that we, we just, we saw, um, just a happy think, accident. Yeah. Like marketing is like a, an exercise and trying to find small signals and then it's like wild catting for oil. So b- dig a small hole, a little bit of oil, build a, a rig. Wow. There's a lot of oil here. Build a bigger rig and focus on that rig until you've like extracted or built a system to extract every ounce of value before you go somewhere else. Um, and, and I think, I think that that, I mean, that is what we did. We, we focused on influencer and just nailed influencer and really built partnerships with these people. Like it it wasn't just about extracting their audience. It was about like, what can we do for them and how can we help them? Um, Yeah. No. And I think also, I mean, I remember you talked about, you know, you, you made them feel also like they were contributing by saying like, we love this recipe of yours. Like it wasn't, it wasn't transactional. It felt personal. It seems like to everyone. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that there was a little bit of trickery there, but uh, yeah. 
That was that was how we I called it our Trojan horse. That's how we got people's attention. So we right. with these the influencers, we were like, we love this chicken Listen, pot pie likes recipe. Their ego stroked, yeah. Uh-huh. Can, can we use it in our box? Can we like send it with the box? And they're like, oh yeah, totally. Just make sure that my name's on there and whatever. By the way, what's butcher mm-hmm. box? We're like, oh, funny, you should ask. So we uh, mm-hmm. that that worked incredibly well for us. I love um, it. All right. Well, I um, I promised Liam that I would be on the dot with uh, 55 minutes. So I'm going to wrap it up here. Um, I just, before we leave, I just, I love the seven-year CEO rule, the replace or reinvent. And um, I think it's just a really interesting way to frame it. I love your perspective on pretty much everything. <laughs> and Mike, honestly, I just want to thank you for, you know, supporting me and my business. And, you know, thank you for all of the wisdom that you're sharing with all of the founders in this ecosystem right now, because we, we definitely need it. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And I'll just say in closing, I think it's really important going back to like being alone and feeling alone as a founder. It's really important to build a community around yourself um, for you and for your audience to build a community around yourself of people that you can be vulnerable and real with, not the people that you're like, we're crushing it because like Mm -hmm. that's not the case. Everyone is dealing with their own shit and their own fears and their own problems and their own triggers and their own team issues. And if you don't deal with that stuff, it will eat you alive. So like find people you can talk to about it. Amazing. I love when these episodes also feel like therapy sessions. There's something I am really lucky. (laughs) This one was a really good one. I laughed. I cried. It's better than cats. Um, Liam, I want to thank you as always for engineering um, and for all the work that you do to make these actually come to life. All of the listeners that I saw at Expo, that was really fun. Thank you for coming up and saying hello. I'm glad that this is helping. Um, We need all the help we can get. I hope everyone is breathing a sigh of relief for those of you who had a really whack weekend. Um, And I think Mike's advice is great. You are not alone. Find your people. Um, and you don't have to do this the way that everyone's been doing it for the last couple of years. Cause it feels like that's all changing anyway. Um, so I'll be back next week with another episode of in the sauce. In the sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to heritage radio network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.